Scooby-Doo. Wow, on a Sunday morning, and we're looking at Advent. What does all that have to do? How does that all work together? So if you're new to Seoul, welcome. I'm Jerry. Glad to have you here. Second Sunday of Advent, we're looking at a, uh, as a basis of a compilation of letters, sermons, thoughts by Dietrich Bonhoeffer that have been assembled in a devotional which we call our series, God is in the Manger. And last week what I did is I actually gave a detailed account as to who Dietrich Bonhoeffer was and, and we also talked how uh, Advent is a season of hopeful waiting. And today I want us to move on in the direction of uh, the uh, devotional and we're going to be looking at uh, the theme of love and mystery. And Bonhoeffer goes on and he writes, he says, the mystery remains a mystery. It withdraws from our grasp. Mystery, however, does not mean simply not knowing something. The greatest mystery is not the most distant star. Rather, on the contrary, the loser something comes to us, and the better we know it, the, the one or mysterious it becomes for us. The greatest mystery to us is not the most distant person, but it's the one next to us. The mystery of other people is not reduced by getting to know more and more and more about them. Rather, in their closeness, they become more and more mysterious. And the final depth of all mystery is when two people come so close to each other that they love each other. Nowhere in the world does one uh, feel the might of the mysterious and its wonder as strongly as here. When two people know everything about each other, the mystery of love between them becomes infinitely great. And only in this love do they understand each other, know everything about each other, know each other completely. And yet, the more they love each other and know about each other in love, the more deeply they know the mystery of their love. Thus, knowledge about each other does not remove the mystery, but rather makes it more profound. The very fact that the other person is so near to me is the greatest mystery. So I'm reading that, and so I'm thinking, okay, i got to go to the web. i got to find something. So here I am. I'm scouring the interweb for something, right? For some examples of men and women and love and, and mystery. And this is what I came up with. I want to share this with you. Um, it's Mark Gungor talking about love and its mysteries and the differences between how men and women are wired. Just watch this. We're going to start discussing men's brains, women's brains, and how they're very different from each other. Now, I want to start with men's brains, all right? Now, men's brains are, are very unique. Men's brains are made up of little boxes, and we have a box for everything. We've got a box for the car. We've got a box for the money. We've got a box for the job. We've got a box for you. We've got a box for the kids. We've got a box for your mother somewhere in the basement. we got... We got <laughs> We, we got boxes everywhere. And, and the rule is, the boxes don't touch. <laughs> when a man discusses a particular subject, we go to that particular box, we pull that box out, we open the box, we discuss only what is in that box. All right? And, and, 
And then we close the box and put it away being very, very careful not to touch any other boxes. Sorry, my Catholic upbringing got in there for a minute, but I... <laughs> I'm not a Catholic, but I went to Catholic school when I was little. I, I had a nun who taught on hell like she was born and raised there. I mean, I'll never forget it, but... Uh... <laughs> it did me good, actually. It was a good thing. Now, women's brains are very, very different from men's brains. Women's brains are made up of a big ball of wire. And everything is connected to everything. The money's connected to the car, and the car's connected to your job, and your kids are connected to your mother, and everything's connected to everything. And it's like... It's like the internet superhighway. Okay. And, and it's all driven by energy that we call emotion. It's, it's, it's one of the reasons why women tend to remember everything. Because if you take an event and you connect it to an emotion, it burns in your memory and you can remember it forever. The same thing happens for men. It just doesn't happen very often because, quite frankly, we don't care. <laughs> Women tend to care about everything. And she just loves it. <laughs> box in our brain that most women are not aware of. This particular box has nothing in it. It's true. It's true. In fact, we call it the nothing box. And of all the boxes a man has in his brain, the nothing box is our favorite box. <laughs> if a man has a chance, he'll go to his nothing box every time. <laughs> That's why a man can do something seemingly completely brain dead for hours on end. You know, like fishing. We love it. That's, that's why a guy can sit in front of a TV and go. So let's just pray and call it a morning. What do you say?
<laughs> As a kid, I, I grew up loving mysteries, reading mysteries. I read actually most of the Hardy Boys in the Nancy Drew series, believe it or not. And even, yeah, and even watching the TV shows with them uh, way back in the uh, 70s. I was always intrigued, though, with these books as to how teenagers would always find themselves in the middle of some crazy mystery and never really happened in my life. You know, again, I like watching mysteries on, on TV like CSI or uh, some of the History Channel documentaries, especially regarding World War I, World War II junk and things that they find and they dig up. And, and I, you ask the question, what makes mysteries so intriguing to us? Because when you think about it, mysteries, they draw us in, don't they? You know, most of us, I, I think most people like a good mystery, especially when, uh, when the revelation of the mystery comes at the appropriate time. The entertainment has, industry has made uh, a living on mysteries, obviously. Uh, but, and there's some certain aspects of a mystery that every, every story needs to ha have. Um, there has to obviously be this seemingly unexplainable situation. Something that we can't figure out, we need a little bit of help, and when the mystery then is revealed by irreputable evidence, it, it, it makes perfect sense. But mysteries, they challenge our thinking and uh, they arouse our interests. And they, they each have certain elements which are true to all of them. You usually have some sort of uh, subject, or let's say in this case a crime that is committed. Uh, in that, now you have victims of that crime. You have a villain on the other end. You always have in every minute, uh, mystery a pretty young thing. And uh, you have a hero. So the Bible is actually one of the greatest mystery stories that has ever been written. That word mystery is used actually 27 times in the New Testament. And it comes from the Greek word mysterion. And it means a hidden secret. That's what mystery means. And so uh, even in the scripture, we have all those elements of a, uh, a, a mystery that we would see on TV. We, we have a crime, but scripture would call the crime sin. We have victims, but the scripture would say that's the entire human race. We have a villain. Uh, scripture say that that's the devil. We have a pretty young thing. Scripture would say that that's the church. And we have a hero, and scripture would say that that's Jesus. So in one sense, the Bible tells of God's plan as being a mystery. Now, it's not the kind of mystery that you and I would say, well, you know, who done it type of thing. It's not that kind of mystery that would be figured out by this Sherlock Holmes character. But in the very real sense, what God was ultimately up to has not fully been realized. It was a mystery to many. That's what was going on. That's still what's going on because we're not quite there yet. Now, what God was doing and has been doing from the very beginning is trying to reconcile his people to himself. And, and the interesting thing, even as we read the scriptures, we see it's not still crystal clear to them. So love itself is a mystery. And it's, this is God's love that we're talking about, hence the, the candle today. It's a mystery trying to figure out God's love, God's plan for the world through Jesus Christ. And when we look at the Christmas story, we see that there's a majestic mystery that the God of the universe, he took on flesh and he came to live among us. Now, the fancy theological word for this is called the incarnation, and it means to be embodied in flesh, and this is actually what God did in order for him to be with us and rescue us from our sin and our brokenness. Now, Scripture reads that the word was um, 
with God and the word was uh, God and the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory and the glory of the one and only son who came from the father full of grace and truth throughout the book of John you just start reading that and, he, and it becomes unpacked for us and Jesus Emmanuel his name which means God with us became fully human without compromising his divinity in order to be near us, to be alongside us. And this is truly a majestic mystery. And it's crazy. It's almost scandalous. We talk about scandalous grace, yet it's true and it's the foundation for everything that we believe as Christians. There's also this mystery to try to attempt to understand that not only is God with us, but God is also for us. You got to think about that. When we look at the life of Jesus, we see that he ate, he drank, he hung out with the, some of the shadiest people. In fact, we learned that God didn't come for those who were the self-proclaimed righteous folk, religious folk, people who seemingly had it all together. Instead, he came for those who didn't have it all together. He came for those who recognized and admitted that they needed a rescuer. And so another aspect of mystery is not only is, is God with us and for us, but he is also in us. And there's a mystery about the presence of God and his intimacy with us. And we see that Jesus, um, uh, after living, dying, rising from the dead, ascending back to the Father, what does he do? He sends God the Holy Spirit to dwell in us, to dwell in us who believe. And in other words, we can live within the presence of God every day. That's just mind-blowing because he came to dwell in, with us and in us. And now we are the dwelling place of God. We don't need a temple or a tabernacle Scripture says he dwells within us. And so Christmas then really is broken down into a simple reminder that God is with us, God is for us, and God is in us. Think about those words. Very, it's amazing. Just look at them and reflect on what's being said. Let that sink in for a moment. Let it rest in that God is with us. God is with you. God is for us. God is for you. And God is in us. God is in you. Now, what would it look like if we actually began to apply some of these truths to our lives every day, especially in this season and this upcoming year? You know, what would it look like for you to dive deeper into learning Scripture and, and the truth and the mysteries of God this season? You know, scriptures set the theme that we read in Isaiah 61, uh, 1 to 4. We hear the promise of God intervening in a hurting world to, to bring comfort, to bring hope, to bring good news to the oppressed, you know, to, to, to the brokenhearted, to bring freedom or, uh, or liberty to the captives, to give beauty instead of ashes, the oil of joy instead of mourning, a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. That's what Jesus came to do. Philippians goes on and says that God has already done this, but in a very surprising way through God and Jesus Christ, coming in a humble way, even willing to die on a cross. And this raises an interesting question. Why should God come into the world in such a weak and powerless way? Why come as a tiny baby and then live in such a humble, weak way, even to the point of death? Some phenomenal questions for us to, to ask and to research. Now, as things slow down for you this Christmas season, how many of you guys watch Christmas movies, like religiously? Some of you are very religious about this, right? So, you know, Die Hard, 
classic Christmas movie, right? Right? Um, Elf, right? Vacation, Home Alone, A Christmas Carol, Jingle All the Way, Christmas with the Cranks. Did I miss any? A Wonderful Life, (laughs) White Christmas, the what? The Bridge. Grinch. Oh, yeah. Okay. Charlie Brown. Okay, so they're all out there. Now, have you given any thought what the world would be like without Christmas? I think that becomes a very interesting question. Now, there's a movie out there called The Chronicles of Narnia that actually explores these questions, telling of a world where Christmas was banned, where the world was covered in in a winter of fear and hopelessness, almost like Winnipeg. Now, the movie is the first of a children's uh, fantasy series called The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe that was written by C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis was basically a contemporary of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, but on the other side of the pond. You tracking with me now? Now, Clive Staples Lewis was born on November 29, 1898 in Belfast, Ireland. His father was a successful lawyer who provided a large home with the dark, narrow passages and an overgrown garden where he often played. That was what he, his thing was. But tragedy, uh, tragically, his idyllic childhood came to a screeching halt when his mother became sick and she died of cancer in 1908. Within a month, C.S. Lewis and his brother found themselves in a boarding school in England. They were shipped across. So as a child, the Lewis family um, had been Christians attending the Church of England. That was their, their faith. But as Lewis entered adolescence, which is really interesting, he came to see religion as nonsense and he began to profess uh, to be an atheist. In 1916, he entered college only to uh, volunteer very soon to active duty in the British Army during World War I. He enjoyed the service. He, he was proud to be engaged in such a patriotic cause. Uh, however, he witnessed death. He witnessed disease um, and destruction. And he lost a great deal of his idealism in that process. No wonder. In 1918, after being wounded by an exploding shell, he was sent home to recover, and he re-entered the university. He finished his college. He eventually went on to go on to teach. He was an Oxford professor. He taught medieval literature. Uh, but eventually, he became a Christian, and part of that journey was because of the influence of a friend and a colleague of J.R.R. Tolkien, the author of the Lord of the Rings trilogy. Now, Tolkien... Tolkien was interesting because he, he convinced Lewis to love the literary genre of myth. And myth in literature simply means a story that points to a larger or deeper meaning in life. And they had these great conversations that were based on, on that. So in the summer of 1929, while riding on a double-decker bus, Lewis felt that he had no choice but to acknowledge a belief in God. And so he went home and he went on his knees and, pr- and prayed and invited Jesus into his heart. During that process, he began to publish, and after he published uh, his journey to faith, which was called The Pilgrim's Regress, he established himself as a writer, and he was approached during World War II. He was asked to write a book on suffering, which is called The Problem of Pain, dealing with evil and other issues that are going on. The BBC then picked it up, and they invited him to host a series of live talks on Christianity. It was a series which actually propelled him to fame in England, and uh, he became one of the most popular voices in England, along with Winston Churchill. So during the bombings of London in World War II, 
C.S. Lewis opened his house to some children who were being evacuated from the city. And one of these young refugees who came into his home was fascinated by a huge wardrobe, a huge uh, closet, so to speak, in his home. And, uh, of course, this child had this imagination that there was something on on the other side of it, on the way through. And Lewis was so captivated by this child's imagination about this wardrobe that in 1948, with his love of myth or of stories stories that point us or parables that point us to a greater truth, he began to write a series of children's books, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And uh, they could be read on one level as exciting adventures and moral lessons, but they also have basic Christian truths embedded in the stories. In, very, in particular, the somewhat mysterious hero in this series uh, is a great lion, Aslan, who's clearly a Christ figure. Now, in the story of the first book, four children, Peter, Susan, Edmund, and Lucy, are sent to the countryside to stay with an elderly professor while the blitzkrieg rages in wartime. First, Lucy, one of the youngest, or the youngest, and then the others, discover this old wardrobe that leads to this magical kingdom called Narnia. Watch this. Now, Narnia is inhabited by dwarfs, talking animals, talking beasts, the great lion, Aslan, a good and powerful king. However, Narnia itself has also come under the spell of the evil white witch, who has caused it to be always winter, but never Christmas, 
whose hold over the land is broken only at the arrival of these four children, the sons of Adam and the daughters of Eve. Now, it's interesting because when you begin to examine the story behind the story, for Lewis, the lion, the witch, and the roar dwarf was more than just a story. It was more than just a myth pointing to something greater, a greater truth. It was actually his story. He saw himself as a Narnian long before he had ever given a name to the country. Can you imagine a place where it's always winter, but it's never Christmas? That's the worst kid's nightmare, right? You, 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 can you imagine a place where there's no sign of relief from the cold and just strictly harsh days? A place where hope is elusive. A place where life continues to deliver tough blows, but never gives you a break. Think about what I'm saying. Can you understand what it means to feel like there is no hope and to be held by captive by, by pain and not be able to see any relief in sight? To think that suffering and agony and the void that you're experiencing today will be characteristic of the rest of your life. Well, Narnia is a figment of the imagination, the reality of C.S. Lewis's fiction is really all too real for many of us. And some of you here today can understand what Narnia is like because you've lost hope this year. You've suffered like no other time in your life. Perhaps this year has been the time where you experienced some of the darkest moments you've ever walked through. And perhaps you've been up nights crying until there were no more tears left in you and you feel like, like nothing is ever going to be right again. And so here we are, we're talking and we're celebrating about this season of hope and love and joy and peace and you have anything but. You are a Narnian. For you it seems that there's always winter but there's never Christmas. The fact of the matter is we're actually all Narnians. We live in a day and an age in which hope is actually very hard to come by. We live in a day and an age where we fear, have this strong fear of the natural disasters. Do we not even look what's going on in California? Never mind the hurricanes and the floods and the earthquakes and everything else. And then we also have terrorism and terrorist attacks. Let's add to it. Let's compound it. We live in a time where the nuclear and biological warfare and the realities of what's going on there is what we're being forced to talk about. We live in an era in which fear, really, when you think about it, has become a way of life. And as the lion, the witch, and the ward world continues, eventually Lucy's rather bad-tempered brother, Edmund, discovers it for himself, and he's taken up by the white witch who lures him to her side with soft talk and a sweet candy known as Turkish delights and promises of power. And eventually Edmund basically sells himself to the witch. He owes his life to the witch. And there's a reason why this story is so powerful because it's not just fiction. It speaks of the reality of what actually goes on in our lives. The reality that you and I, we live in fear and, and we live in bondage. We live in fear and bondage to the forces of evil that are around us. You don't have to go far for us to find them. They're all around us. And, then, and, and that evil in combination with the hurt and the pain and the emptiness and the sense of permanent winter in our lives can actually lead us to despair. And that's why we have so much depression at Christmas. That's why we even do our own blue Christmas for those who just need a touch of healing. 
And the fact of the matter is you and I need somebody like Aslan to come and to rescue us. We need the hero of the story. We need that lion. We need an Aslan figure to bound into our lives and to pull us out from our winter. We need a great king to enter into our stories, to make right the wrong, to eliminate our sorrows, to, to uh, conquer our deaths, to fill our emptiness. And the good news is that while Lewis wrote this book with children in mind, when you think about it, when you watch the movies, it's fascinating. He also did so to appeal to adults and convey a larger message to them. And again, the story as you watch it or as you read it can be seen as a parallel or a parable about good and evil, you know, of the temptation and abuse of power, the, the kind of power that can heal and cleanse as well. It's about love of power, but the power of love. And you know, power is, is a strange force. It's mysterious. There's the familiar saying that power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. There's, there's the definite tendency that the longer a person has power, the more likely that he or she will actually begin to abuse it. But on the other hand, powerlessness is even more destructive for then you don't have a choice for good and evil and the feeling of helplessness can just be as corrupting as the feeling of absolute power. The extremes on either end. And so there's a core basic theme of Christian faith that deals with power. Especially the choice between the power of love and, and oh, sorry, the love of power and the power of love. And that's also the theme within the Chronicles of Narnia. Two kinds of power battling for control of Narnia and for its people. And the first is the love of power. As a first grader, uh, he was told by his mom, come home directly from school. Well, it often took him almost 20 minutes longer to come home from school than it was that it took him to actually walk to school. And his mom asked him, well, you know, you get out of school at the same time every day. I can't figure it out. Why can't you get home at the same time? Why is it always longer, longer, longer? And he replied, mom, it depends on the cars. And mom looks at the kid and goes, what do cars have to do with it? And, and the younger one explains to the patrol boy who takes us across the street, makes us wait until some cars come along so that he can stop them. <laughs> Power. Open up the Christmas story. We see the King Herod. What does he do? He's a paranoid king. He's willing to massacre children. Think about it. Willing to massacre children to protect his power. Joseph and Mary had, a, had to fight another kind of power, or maybe peer pressure, or whatever you want to call it, what, what society was thinking when Mary became pregnant before she was supposed to. You know, evidently they managed to be away from home, probably for much of her pregnancy, who knows, but perhaps to avoid the attitudes of the comments, but it's just, it was there. In Narnia, the witch loved the power for its own sake. And anyone who displeased her or who uh, she thought was a threat, she turns into stone. And the boy Edmund, he turns out to be an easy conquest for the witch. He, he has an older brother and an older sister, and they felt sort of lost in the shuffle. They were feeling powerless in the whole scenario. It was only Lucy, the, the younger, the smaller than Edmund. And so he tries to boss her around. He tries to get her into trouble. He throws her under the bus, so to speak. Um, and it's interesting because somebody also said that the lust for power is rooted in weakness. 
Edmund felt weak, and so he was tempted by the witch to be made a king and to be a boss over his brothers and sisters, and he gave in to that temptation. And the witch has also tempted him by his love for candy, ironically, Turkish delights, but that's getting too close for home for me, so I don't want to talk about that anymore. Aslan and Jesus represent a different kind of power, a healthier version The word power has that Latin root in pote or posse. And it means to be able, when you think about it. It means to, to the ability to act, the ability to do something. It's a necessary force in one's life, but it also gives freedom. The freedom to choose unhealthy or healthy decisions and action. Some ancient cultures, interesting enough, have two words for power, mana and taboo. I was familiar with taboo. I wasn't familiar with mana. Mana is the power which creates. It's actually a positive power. Taboo points to the power that destroys. It's the negative. And so in the story of Narnia, Aslan shows us the power of love. He shows us the creative, the life-giving power in action. Now Aslan is not a nice, bland kind of loving stuffed animal or pet. But you have to sit there and you have to listen how, how the children describe their feelings when they first heard of Aslan in the book. It says, perhaps it's something that happened to you in a dream that someone says something you don't understand. But in a dream, it feels as if it had some enormous meaning, either a terrifying one, which turns the whole dream into a nightmare, or else a lovely meaning. Too lovely to put words which makes the dream so beautiful that you remember it all your life and you're always wishing that you could get into that dream again. It was like that now. At the name of Aslan, each one of the children felt something jump inside. Edmund felt a sensation of mysterious horror. Peter suddenly felt brave and adventurous. Susan felt as if some delicious smell or delightful strain of music had just floated over her. And Lucy got the feeling if you have, uh, that you have when you wake up in the morning and realize that it is the beginning of the holidays or the beginning of summer. Just interesting how people respond. In the movie, there's this conversation around the table with Mr. Beaver about Aslan. And I like what it says, Beaver. He's a great character. He says, he's the king, the lord of the whole wood, and the son of the great emperor beyond the sea. If there's anybody who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or else just silly. He isn't safe. Or, sorry, then he isn't safe. Safe? Said Mr. Beaver, of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's wild, you know, not like a tame lion. At the end of the movie, that, that quote is brought up again. And if you haven't seen the Chronicles of Narnia, watch it. Be careful with your little kids. <laughs> They're prone to getting scared. So power is never safe or tame. Even the power of love. But it's good. It's good. And that's what counts. And how we control the destructive uses of power, which come out of pride or the addiction to power, or more often comes out of our own insecurities, our own fears, is crucial to our lives and our faith. How we build up the power of love becomes an antidote. And our relationships, all our relationships with others are shaped by these two forces of power when you think about it. And, and, and that's the mystery of love. 
You know, how do we apply this to our own lives? And I think the first, as Advent reminds us, is that we need to be on the watch. Right? We need to be on the watch for both the power of love that comes into our lives and for the things that might, might hook us or make us fearful or mistrustful or bitter. But secondly, we need to seek the opposite of the need of control. I think we need to build up a love that invites. We need to build up a love that welcomes, that enables us to be freer, to make more healthier choices in our culture. But beware that the path of love has a price, doesn't it? We stick our necks out on the line, right? And yet the love of power does everything it can to avoid that. When we stick our necks out on the line, when we step out of that comfort zone, when we make known our feelings, our love, our affection, our heart is pulled out. And yet those who love power keep the heart protected and enclosed. To love by definition means to be vulnerable. Are we vulnerable? It means that we don't curse our values and our feelings onto other people. And in the story of Aslan, the, the, which, and the, 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 at the heart of the Christian faith, faith, it reminds us of this. You know, while writing the story, Lewis said that it seemed, un, it seemed uninspired. And he goes on, he says, the great lion Aslan came bounding in the story. Until the great lion Aslan came bounding into the story. So he felt he wrote this myth, this, this story, and it wasn't inspired until Aslan showed up. And in the story, Edmund, because he had been a traitor to his family and his friends, is required by the ancient law uh, to be sacrificed on an altar, to be killed for his sins. And this is what the queen had planned from day one. And mighty Aslan had to adhere to the law of the land. He knew that. But when Aslan reminds the wicked queen that there's even an older law, or what he was referred to as a deeper magic, perhaps coming out of the very fabric of the universe from the, before the dawn of time in which a person may give himself or herself as a sacrifice in the place of the person deserving the punishment. And so then in the movie, you have this heart-wrenching scene where Aslan sacrifices his own life for Edmund, thereby freeing him from the queen. And so Aslan makes the ultimate sacrifice of love, even as Jesus Christ made the ultimate sacrifice on the cross for us. Aslan in the movie comes back to life, and he and his followers win a great battle over the forces of evil, making these four children the kings and queens of Narnia. It all sounds very familiar, and yet sometimes in the depths of despair, when life has fallen apart... God can lead us into a deeper strength and love at the very core of our souls. Lewis wrote this. He says, I have no hope in one who reads this book has been quite as miserable as Susan and Lucy were that night, the night that Aslan was killed. But if you had been, if you had been up all night and cried till you had no more tears left in you, you will know that there comes in the end, a sort of quietness, and you feel as if nothing was ever going to happen again. And one of the lessons of love seems to be that sometimes there must be sacrifice and loss before we can pass through in our healing. We don't like to hear that in our culture, but that's the reality. And to that resurrection power of love. And out of that love that we, we, we see flows a power that can actually change people's lives. And, and this, as the story shows, when As, 
Aslan is resurrected and leads his side to victory in the great battle against evil. It is shown there in the Christian faith. The story may be, begin with Christmas, then it moves to the cross, but then it ends with the resurrection and the power of love ultimately winning against the love of power. So the story of Jesus Christ and the Chronicles of Narnia is that there is a force powerful enough to give us strength, to give us guidance that we need in life, the the power of love. And our calling is to respond to that love and to let it lead wherever it will, to literally let go and let God. We, We can use that as a cliche, but do we apply it in our lives? And this ultimately is the only real power that leads to healing and reconciliation in our lives and relationships. Just before, about a month before he died, C.S. Lewis received a letter from a young lady named Ruth, and she wanted to know if any more Narnia books were, were going to be produced, and this is what his response to her was. He says, if you continue to love Jesus, nothing much can go wrong with you, and I hope that you may always do so. I'm so thankful that you realize the hidden story in the Narnia books It's odd, children nearly always do, grown-ups hardly ever. And again, you ask the question, why does Lewis speak of this hidden story? Because the story of Narnia, the story of Peter, Susan, Edmund, and Lucy, and Aslan is a real story. It's the story of Christmas, just as Aslan brought Christmas when he came to Narnia, so Jesus brought Christmas when he was born in the manger. Now, Bonhoeffer, he writes that this, that, that, sorry, is the unrecognized mystery of this world, Jesus Christ, that this Jesus of Nazareth, the carpenter, was himself the Lord of glory. That was the mystery of God. It was a mystery because God became poor, lowly, and weak out of love for humankind because God became a human being like us so that we would become divine and because he came to us so that we would come to him. God as the one who becomes low for our sakes. God in Jesus of Nazareth. That is the secret hidden wisdom that no eye has seen, nor ear has heard, nor human heart conceived. That is the depth of the deity whom we worship as mystery and comprehend as mystery. You know, just as blood had to be shed for Edmund's freedom, and that was the price for his freedom, blood too had to be shed for our freedom. As we contemplate Christmas, the New Testament book of Hebrews tells us that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And just so, again, in the story, as Aslan was willing to lay down his life for Edmund, so too Jesus laid down his life for you and for me. And I think perhaps the most powerful scene in the entire movie is the one that gives me goosebumps when I watch it is when Aslan is resurrected. The most powerful thing. You know, the Bible tells a similar similar story. After Jesus' death, he too is resurrected. It's the most powerful thing. It's like watching the Passion of the Christ and the final scene of the the movie where he's walking out of the grave. The death couldn't keep him on the ground because Jesus Christ is alive. You know, we we don't want to miss Christmas because Aslan, uh, Narnia almost did. 
And when you think about it, when we decide to follow Jesus, it's as if the snow melts in from our heart and spring comes. Lewis wrote the line, The Witch in the Wardrobe, because he knew what it was like to live in a life where it was always winter but never Christmas. He always understood that Jesus uh, Christ had come for him, died in his place, and he encountered Christ who changed his life, and it gave him a hope in the future. Much like Bonhoeffer. So I never know who comes on a Sunday morning. But don't you want it to be Christmas? And I'm not talking about the consumerism and anything else like that. I'm talking about the hope, the love, the joy, and the peace. Don't you want it to be Christmas? Or maybe we're tired of just living with a sense of emptiness. Maybe we're tired and we just need and we're ready to have the snow melted away from our heart. And yet I I realize very quickly that the good news is that the wonder of Christmas is really available to us. The Bible says that everybody who becomes a follower of Christ, a Christian, becomes a new person, that the old life is gone, the new has become, uh, he has begun, and, and that peace and that hope that, that may have been elusive to us is now available. And it can be available, and Christmas can be ours. The world has taken what Christmas is and turned it upside down. But yet when we sit and we reflect and we're reminded of hope, and we're reminded of love, and we're reminded of joy, and we're reminded of peace, it brings a whole new message into our hands. Maybe you're here this morning, and I want to be able to just sort of guide you through a prayer that will enable you to receive the Christ of Christmas that would give you a new outlook Because Jesus wants to come bounding into all of our lives as Aslan went bounding into Narnia to release us from pain and the bitterness of winter. I love how Bonhoeffer writes, he says, and that is the wonder of all wonders, that God loves the lowly. God is not ashamed of the lowliness of human beings. God marches right in. He chooses people as his instruments. He performs his wonders where one would least expect them. God is near to lowliness. He loves the lost, the neglected, the unseemingly, the excluded, the weak, and the broken. Now, is that you today? At any stage in our life, do you need to surrender to Jesus? And if so, what are you waiting for? Maybe you're feeling a tugging in your heart, and that's really Jesus is calling your name to following him. He he came to earth 2,000 years ago for you and for me and for this world. And And Jordan talked about that when we did communion. For this moment, though, that's why he's here. And today may be that day where you need to turn around, change your life, and make Jesus Lord of our lives. And if that's you, just bow your heads with me and let's pray a simple prayer with me. I just encourage all of us just to bow our heads. Lord Jesus, I recognize you as my Lord and Savior. And I'm sorry for the things in my life that have displeased you. So thank you for coming to earth to die in my place, to take away my sin. And I believe in you and I now receive you in my life. Thank you for making me a child of God. And help me to rely on you in the days to come.
Help me to follow you so I can grow to become like you. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, if you prayed that for the first time, you need to tell us before you leave. Pastor Jordan will be at the cross over here to my right. You can come there. You can talk to him. Come talk to me. Or fill out a connect card. Give it to the welcome desk on the way out. We'll connect you up and we'll, we'll meet you at any time and place that would make it work. Now for the rest of us, actually for all of us, how's your hope doing? Are you waiting? Love. The mystery of it. I think married couples got a little something out of that Gungor video. Some of you are gonna go back and watch it on YouTube. It's two hours long, enjoy. Next week, we have the kids' program, Joy. And then according to the devotional, also redemption. And then peace. A constant reminder of what we need this entire season. What do you need? What do you need as you walk out of here this morning? Why don't you stand with me? Again, we're ending it different. Our ending, our prayer, our prayer and our blessing are incorporated in a song. A song that's taken from the breastplate prayer of St. Patrick. A great song for our church to sing. Why? Because it's easy to learn. It teaches the truth that we need and it's embedded in our memories. And you can sing it over and over again. Jesse, lead us. Above and below, before and behind, and every eye that sees you, may he be around you. Be blessed, and we'll see you next week. Amen.